Hello, and welcome to Live from AUA 2023 Highlights in BPH. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we are able to continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, we'd like to go over a few items. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Amy Cranbeck, for her tremendous efforts to plan this activity. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our distinguished faculty, Drs. Dean Elterman, Tobias Kohler, and Nicole Miller for their time, talent, and expertise. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this enduring activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. The AUA is not accredited to offer credit to participants who are not MDs or DOs. However, the AUA will issue documentation of participation that states that the activity was certified for AMA PRA Category 1 credit. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. Please visit AUA University to view faculty, education council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. The AUA would like to thank Cook Medical LLC and Olympus Corporation of the Americas for providing independent educational grants in support of this activity. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. Thank you for attending live from AUA 2023. I'll now turn the program over to Dr. Krambeck. Hello, today we will be discussing highlights from the AUA annual meeting uh, BPH presentations. My name is Dr. Amy Krambeck and I am a professor of urology at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. I specialize in endourology and I am honored to moderate this informative discussion. I am joined here today with first Dr. Dean Elterman. Dr. Elterman is an academic urologist at the University of Toronto, subspecializing in functional urology. He is the medical director of the Prostate Cancer Rehabilitation Clinic at Prince Margaret Cancer Center. Dr. Elterman lectures internationally on the topic of novel technologies for BPH and sacral neuromodulation and teaches courses at the AUA and SIU. We are also joined by Dr. Tobias Kohler. Dr. Kohler specializes in the treatment of erectile and sexual dysfunction and BPH in the Department of Urology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Kohler is the president-elect of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America and has published more than 300 peer-reviewed scientific articles or book chapters. He previously served on three AUA guidelines panels, including the surgical and medical treatment of BPH. And finally, last but not least, we have Dr. Nicole Miller. Dr. Miller is professor of urologic surgery at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. She specializes in the medical and surgical treatment of kidney stone disease, as well as laser surgery for BPH. Dr. Miller has served on course as a course faculty member, both nationally and internationally for the AUA and the Endourological Society, in the area of surgical treatment of BPH and nephrolithiasis. 
She is an editorial board member for the Journal of Urology and co-director of the Minimally Invasive Surgery and Endourology Fellowship at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Now let's turn to the scope of the problem. With improvements in healthcare, worldwide life expectancy is increasing, which has resulted in a rising number of men suffering from symptomatic BPH. Many of these men have multiple comorbidities, including limited mobility, immunosuppression, and need for anticoagulation, which can complicate surgical interventions. Further complicating the treatment decisions is the wide variety of therapeutic interventions available, ranging from biofeedback to medication, office-based therapies, and surgical procedures. The choice of interventions can be overwhelming to both patient and physician alike. When making treatment decisions, consideration should include longevity of the treatment results, side effects, prostate size, cost, equipment availability, as well as patient and surgeon-specific factors. Furthermore, recent research has highlighted the importance of sexual function preservation, with current treatment options seeking to limit the impact on overall sexual satisfaction. To add yet another layer of complexity, many of the available procedures have subtle nuances that require different preoperative evaluations. It's a lot to digest. So we hope that today's discussion will shed light on the available treatment options and their respective indications and benefits. So to start, the AUA BPH guidelines should be used as a reference point for the diagnostic evaluation of male LUTs. Dr. Kaplan was the course director at the AUA BPH management case presentation course, which focused on using the guidelines as a resource for workup and treatment of male LUTs. Dr. Elterman, Based on the information provided in the course and your own personal practice, what is your baseline workup for male LUTs and how does it vary depending on potential treatments that you plan to offer? I think it's a, a great question and certainly you know, we need to try to stick to the guidelines as best as possible. I think remember though that the guidelines are essentially uh, evidence-based, expert opinion, supported by the peer-reviewed literature, and it doesn't replace our clinical decision-making. It's still on the physician. But the AUA guidelines are very clear that there is a basic evaluation necessary, uh, both from the history, the physicals, and basic, uh, you know, urinalysis testing. I think where the guidelines have really innovated is in the assessment of prostate volume. We've really evolved over the number of years where the interventions are based upon prostate volume. But if you don't get a good volumetric assessment at the outset, you're not going to know how to proceed. And so either with an ultrasound or some sort of other imaging, CT or MRI, you really need to get a size of uh, size estimation of the prostate. So that's really where I would uh, put the guidelines into practice is not only the basic evaluation using validated questionnaires, of course, but really getting a prostate volume assessment, which is accurate. I think that's an excellent point. Um, are you routinely using cystoscopy in your evaluation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I still think that cystoscopy gives us a lot of information, particularly with a lot of the new technologies that are dependent upon whether there is or isn't a median lobe present. It's really vital to know the anatomy of the prostate, especially when it comes to the middle lobe. If it's a small middle lobe or a large obstructive middle lobe, that will uh, steer one in one direction or another based upon if you're using one of these uh, newer minimally invasive treatments, for example. 
Well, you touched on um, size and configuration. In, in the current era of low-dose CT scans and prostate MRI, what is the role of the transrectal ultrasound in the workup of male LETs? Well, TRUSS offers us a very accurate determination of prostate volume, right? You're getting a direct close assessment. Uh, and often, you know, we don't necessarily have axial imaging, but with the increased rise of uh, PSA screening coupled with multiparametric MRI, for example, we're getting a lot more assessments of prostate volume or MRI. It sort of negates the need to get a truss if you, again, have a fairly good assessment. So I'm not too stuck up on it. I think that if you can get any prostate volume assessment, whether it's by truss, CT or MRI, but at least just have something that you can base some decision-making upon. Perfect. And, and, you know, at this meeting, there was so many new devices uh, presented on not, as non-invasive pressure flow devices that can assess for obstruction in men suffering from what. So how do you incorporate these new devices into your practice? Do you see them replacing formal urodynamic studies um, or do you see them as an augment? I think one of the great takeaways that I had from this meeting was with the innovation that we're seeing in home diagnostic tools. We now have a number of apps that can detect sound based um, for urination and give us very good urine flow studies, non-invasive urine flow studies at home. Uh, and of course, we have even miniaturized uh, options that will be placed into the bladder for ambulatory urodynamics. The thing is, one single flow study isn't necessarily going to be accurate to make a good BPH decision on. And so the idea of uh, collecting numerous points of data over time and these home app or instrument devices are really going to allow us to do remote monitoring, detection of a series of events to give us a broader picture of what's actually happening with urinary function. Yeah, I think, I think it's really an exciting time to be in BPH with all of this available to us. Um, Dr. Kohler, there's so many missed therapies available. How does a practicing urologist work through this? And, and how does the patient make a treatment choice? Really for you, what is the most important factor to guide decision-making when considering the minimally invasive therapies available? Well, thanks for the question. Uh, I think not only minimally invasive treatments, but any treatment. Uh, I think the first step is to use the shared decision-making model uh, to help pick what's best uh, for the for the patient based on his preferences. Obviously we have to have a lot of baseline information though to make an educated, great choice. And so uh, I really think that um, I like the concept of, first of all, the urinary chief complaint. Uh, one of my former fellows, uh, Dr. Chuck Welliver and Kevin McVeary, former mentor of mine, introduced this concept like what bothers the patient most and that helps guide a decision. But beyond that, I'm a really big fan of, you know, checking uh, flow study, looking in that, checking the post residual volume. And then when diagnostic uncertainty exists, which it does a lot for me, uh, I get these minimally invasive kind of pressure flow assessments to really try to help guide my decision-making strategy. It's a big difference if a patient has a history of retention uh, and he's low pressure, low flow on a, a cuff study, for example, or urodynamics, or if he's not obstructed, right? So with the correct information and kind of the urologic chief complaint. That's how I like to guide the decision-making. I think in life, sometimes we get a great menu of options and we can choose from five or six things. But sometimes patients come to us and the menu of options should be very small. And maybe I'll send them to Dr. Miller for the nucleation because maybe that's the best thing. Um, 
So yeah, it's kind of the, the combination of those things along with, of course, the patient's goals. Is it sexual preservation? Is it a minimization of catheter time? Is it durability? These are kind of all the factors that influence this decision. So, so in your opinion, you know, with these trade-offs that we have to think about, how do you counsel the patient with regards to preservation of renal bladder function versus preservation of sexual function? Really, what are the important trade-offs that you have to discuss with the patient when you go down this treatment path? Yeah, I think as long as we have reasonable follow-up and the patient is willing to come back in years following, we can monitor their flow rates and their PVRs and see if there's any signs of distress, see if there's episodes of retention or chronic UTIs or bladder stones. Most options are reasonable. Um, but so it's the fact that you know they're going to follow along helps guide this decision. And then if if they're reliable, you can explain, well, yeah, if you want a very durable procedure, we're going to need to do something you know, for 10 years, you'll need a nucleation. If you want to maximize you know, sexual preservation, then let's focus on the mists. Um, but I do really try to get the point across that I worry about bladders. I think we, we do a fairly poor job of getting patients in early enough. And by the time we see them, their bladders are decompensated to some extent. Uh, I know we'll probably get into this later, but you know, I always like to remind my residents that alpha blockers alone do not prevent surgery. They don't prevent uh, deterioration of bladder function. And I think it's a big, big mistake. So I always like to remind the patient, if you kind of go on a 10-year hiatus and don't see us again, it's very possible that you're going to be, be cathing the rest of your life. That's a, that's a great point. A safe, I mean, we have to be safe with the patient. So um, I, I would like to transition now to talking about advanced surgical interventions for symptomatic BPH. I had the opportunity to, to act as the course director for the surgical management of BPH hands-on course um, with skills training. And we focused on robotic water jet ablation of the prostate. Uh, Dr. Miller, you are a very well-known enucleation surgeon. Um, do you believe that hands-on training with the current available teaching models can be helpful in training enucleation to the practicing neurologist? Or do you believe that formal residency or fellowship training is necessary? Excellent question, very practical one. Um, I don't think you need to have fellowship training. There are great examples of those that actually um, have been self-taught in this um, arena. And um, I think that it, what, the, what exists is a true learning curve here. Um, there are a certain number of cases you are going to need to do of a nucleation to feel comfortable um, and to feel safe. And we all know that all prostates are different, size is different, configuration is different, and there's always a little bit of nuance to the challenge of those cases. Having said that, you cannot underestimate the value of uh, simulation. And I think that's been shown in, in various um, areas in urology. I think what we have lacked uh, in the past were good enough simulators um, for this operation. Like, we want to be able to have a simulator that is as real to life as possible and maybe even one that we can develop a curriculum to determine um, competency and i think that that is certainly on the horizon there are some very uh, clever individuals that are um, looking to improve the models that we have and also formulating um, a uh, you know if you will a competency checklist i think that'll be necessary if you're going to bring 
um, this technology and this operation into your hospital, there's going to be often, um, you know, you have to prove competency in certain procedures to, to get credentialed to do it. Um, so I think this would be a big step. Yeah, I, I think it's long overdue. So it, this is exciting. Um, do you adhere to the old, to the new adage of a nucleation is a nucleation is a nucleation? Or do you think there are different results achieved with different energy sources, such as bipolar, thulip, um, green light, enucleation, homium? Well, I, I do think that the results very much depend on how complete uh, a removal of the transitional zone you're able to, ac to accomplish. Um, and if you can do that with any energy, then there's a good chance that they'll be fairly equivalent. Having said that, I think there are some potential limitations and some nuance, um, particularly with bipolar nucleation. I think if you start to get to much bigger prostates over, say, 100 cc's, that's going to be a much more difficult operation to do with bipolar nucleation. Um, and what laser energy you decide to utilize, I think, has a lot to do with what you learned with. So, you know, I learned with Holmium. Um, now I very much like, um, you know, pulse modulated Holmium. I think it does a really nice job of opening the plane and a really good job at uh, hemostasis. Um, but with newer lasers like the thulium fiber laser, there are those that have those in their hospitals that are using them effectively for a nucleation. I think the nuance there is that um, it can cause more charring than the Holmium does. And so finding the plane and knowing that you're in the, the right place can be more difficult. Um, but again, I think uh, if you commit to learning a nucleation and you have a, an energy source, I think it's more the number of cases that you're doing and being committed to learning it that's going to determine success. I agree. If we can just get people on nucleating, that, that's the key for long-term results. So, uh, Dr. Kohler, the, the technique of robotic water jet ablation has evolved to include bipolar resection or ablation of the cavity after water ablation to limit the bleeding complications. What, what role do you see robotic water jet ablation taking as a surgical treatment long-term? Do you think it'll replace TERP or enucleation or some of the missed therapies or medication? Where, where does it fit in our armamentarium? Yeah, I guess, first of all, I think it's not truly a missed as we have to do it in the OR, as opposed to some miss you can do in the clinic, right? Um, and in terms of where it sits, if we had many, many Dr. Cranbecks and many, many Dr. Millers who were very good at enucleation, it probably wouldn't be uh, as integral as it is. But since we don't have expert nucleus widespread. I think its main role is going to be in the large gland uh, for an excellent resection in a very reasonable amount of time. I don't think it's going to replace TERP per se, but it will replace TERP uh, instead of uh, sending somebody out for nucleation if it's a 200 gram gland, right? So I think its main, main role is going to be at centers where they want to be able to take care of big glands. They don't want to do robotic or open uh, nucleation or they don't have a nucleus. And so I think it's a reasonable option in this kind of larger gland uh, setting. Uh, clearly, if people are not comfortable with TERP, it could also replace the need for TERP with smaller glands as well. But uh, yeah, I think that's what's gonna sit. Amy, can I just add a little bit on this, on the water jet ablation? You know, we've uh, taken a look uh, at some of the outcomes. We had an abstract here with 20,000 patients where they have added this focal bladder neck cautery and the rate of uh, significant bleeding, i.e., you know, transfusion, is now down to 0.1 percent. 
so you know i would say that generally this perception around hemostasis is uh from a bygone era uh like all technologies and techniques it's evolved uh and so you know the majority of cases being done with aquablation are actually between the 40 to 80 gram prostate so yes it has this ability to do very large glands uh over time because it's not really size or shape uh, dependent but i do think when you're looking at efficiency uh, of the OR where they can get done in, you know, under an hour, under 45 minutes, and the reproducibility of the outcomes, uh, certainly compared to TERP. And as we move further into the 21st century, the idea of using real-time imaging to actually see the borders of where you want to get out to for the transition zone, uh, see how much tissue you've removed, uh, and automate it. I mean, we're moving to autonomous cars, self-driving cars, uh, you know, electric cars, and so there's no reason why uh, the field of BPH can't also progress uh, with with technology that we're seeing in other spheres of, of the world. I do think it's worth saying, though, that there is a substantial cost to the system. And I think if you, you have to have a certain volume of these cases that you're doing in order to make the cost um, make sense in your practice, certainly if you're doing a lot of BPH, then I think uh, it would be very useful addition. Yeah. I the, the cost is a, is a big issue. And, and I think Dr. Kohler brought this up a little bit earlier about TERP. And, you know, in the early 2000s, the retreatment rate for a TERP was 12% at seven years. Now you look at, you know, 2020, we're looking at 12% at one year. And it's because we're not training our residents how to do TERP. Like, they don't do as many. They have all these other options. They don't do it as well. So, so may, maybe Dean and, and Toby are right in that it's going to, it's really going to pull that TERP volume um, and pull away from that and uh, maybe make it more re reproducible. So um, let's move on to some missed therapies. Um, there was a lot of buzz about that at the AUA this year. And really the big buzz is trying to limit the impact on men's sexual health. Um, the ASMH session was held during the meeting and Dr. Elterman had a chance to attend. Uh, what do you think is the newest trend in the treatment consideration of men with male LUTs? Well, I think there's a couple trends. Certainly, there's a greater realization that all the medications for benign prostate disease are not that benign. There are some long-term uh, complications, concerns around the use of these medications whether it's uh, dementia and cognitive impairment or cardiovascular risks, congestive heart failure example. And the other thing is just this idea, I think Toby alluded to it, we're kicking the can down the road. We're not protecting the bladder and preserving it. So, you know, the idea that we can do a minimally invasive treatment uh, that sort of straddles the category between medical therapy and more invasive and long-term durable transurethral surgery is really attractive to a lot of men. And then, of course, the idea that it can be done as an outpatient in office setting that preserves sexual function. So there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, we have a lot of issues with medication persistence, right? A lot of people don't stay on their drugs beyond a year or even two years. Um, so, you know, the minimally invasive options that we have, and there are now three uh, FDA approved minimally invasive treatments. Uh, water vapor thermal therapy, prosthetic urethral lift, uh, and the ITIN temporary nightmare device, uh, they all offer us an opportunity to do a minimally invasive treatment uh, that will provide a better improvement symptomatically than medical therapy whilst preserving sexual function, if that's important to men, erections and ejaculation. So I think having the discussion 
with our patients about what is important to them. Because what's important to us as physicians, peak flows, uh, PVRs, durability, isn't necessarily important to men. They care about, is it going to hurt me? Am I going to leak? When can I get back to work? Um, so having these conversations about what is the priority to their patient, what is their values and expectations when it comes to surgical or medical treatment, I think the mists really fit into that, but we have to really have that conversation with the patients. So, do, so in your opinion, do you think over the next two, three years, we're going to see people just skipping over medication entirely? Um, the number of medications decreased and the number of mist therapies increasing, just going straight to mist. I think so. I mean, we, listen, we have this tsunami of an aging population, so we don't have enough urologists to do everything. So there's always going to be a role for medical therapy. I would love to see some innovation in medical therapy. Uh, but the mists allow us to treat so many more patients than those in the operating room because they can be done as an outpatient. You can do many more. So to address the needs of our aging male population who will have symptomatic BPH, for sure, we're going to be using more and more mists. And as was seen at a number of the sessions, and not only do we have the three FDA approved, but we have a number that are under um, phase three pivotal studies. A lot of these new nitinol-based prostate stents uh, there is a drug-coated balloon. Um, there's a lot of innovation in this field, and I think it's really designed to, again, meet the expectations and values of our male patients and keep up with the demand of an aging population. Yeah, I agree. Um, Dr. Kohler, you, you do uh, quite a few missed therapies. Um, what are the real life rates of ejaculatory preser preservation? You know, we see these great research studies published, but, but are the clinical results mirroring the early publications? Before I answer that, I just want to dovetail off what Dr. Elterman said about uh, decrease of medications. I really hope we see a decrease because, you know, when we looked at data of 50,000 men presenting to a urology clinic, uh, one in seven of them already had really low pressure, low flow bladders, bladders in trouble. That's just unacceptable. So the only way we're going to move away from that is if we start to deobstruct prostates earlier. So now I'll move over to your question. Uh, you know, I think typically when you see these excellent uh, ejaculation rates, often um, the initial studies are optimistic, overly optimistic. They have excellent patient selection. Thus far, uh, I have not had seen any problems with ejaculation after year lift. Um, and so that's pretty good. So if somebody looks at me and they say, says, Kohler, I must ejaculate after the procedure, I think that's a go-to uh, in my hands. Uh, resume or the vapor therapy uh, has also very low rates reported in the literature. And as I looked at the five-year follow-up data and a bunch of recent studies, that has been very consistent in the literature. Now, I personally do a lot more steam therapy in my practice, and I quote about a 10% rate of ejaculatory dysfunction. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the literature, it's often these questionnaires that are presented and then they take these scores. I look at my patient in the eye and say, have you had a change in your ejaculation? And most of them, like 10% will say yes. Sometimes it's decreased volume, sometimes complete and ejaculation. This isn't necessarily a horrible outcome for them, but I think it's a little bit higher in my hands in the real world, real world with Resume than it is in the reported literature that I've seen. So I feel more comfortable quoting about a 10% rate of EJD. Perfect. Um, and, and you mentioned that you do more Resume. Um, do you, where do you see the role of Resume in the future? Do you think it will be 
preventing surgical intervention like TERP or a nucleation, or is it simply limiting the use of medication and, and like medication prolonging the time until a surgical intervention? Um, and then to follow up that question, do you think Resume will just completely replace microwave? Will people be doing microwave in five years? Yeah, I don't, you know, uh, our microwave is somewhere in a in a closet somewhere in, in some storage facility, uh, which um, I guess that's not true for everybody, but clearly it's been replaced by the, the newer modalities, at least at our institution. In terms of, you know, where will it sit? I mean, I think, again, depending on when the patient comes to us and what their bladder distress is, is going to determine whether or not it's going to be something that will give them a long durable response or will kind of de-obstruct them for a reasonable time period where they still value their sexual function highly and then maybe they have to move to something more aggressive five to seven years down the line. I guess it depends on when they present and the size and architecture of the prostate and how effective the therapy actually works out for them. But note, notably, this uh, assumes that we're getting good follow-up of the patients after doing the procedure, right? Because if we do the procedure and they don't come back for another 10 years, then we may miss window of opportunity to either re-engage in a secondary missed procedure, which a lot of patients are willing to undergo, or move on to a more uh, kind of truly de-obstructing procedure with more aggressive uh, you know, enucleation, for example. So your common drive-home theme is follow-up. Don't lose these patients. Yeah, and empower the patients to know that they need to protect their own bladder. And if they don't, they may end up cathing. And at that, I think that is a very powerful message because most men just abhor the catheter. That really drives a lot of times why, why, which mist we'll pick. And so if they have that in the back of their minds, I think we'll do a lot better job of these guys following up with us. Perfect. Well, let's move on to the BPH-focused plenary session at the AUA. In my opinion, the sessions were extremely practical and applicable to most clinical scenarios facing the practicing urologist. Dr. Miller performed a flawless holup uh, using newer laser technology, and many different procedures were showcased. Dr. Miller, you had a chance to attend the plenary session and you know, be a part of the plenary session. Um, the session on second opinions, persistent LUTs after BPH procedures, um, I know you face this all the time in your clinical practice. Uh, do you believe that a procedure that definitively removes tissue, such as TERP or enucleation, is needed? Or do you think that missed therapies can still play a role in patients with persistent LUTs after a failed procedure? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I think, you know, we do see these patients with persistent lower urinary tract symptoms. And I think the most important thing is you try to figure out exactly what's causing them. Um, before you decide to do another procedure, you'd have to really prove that they're obstructed in nature. Um, I think so many of these patients have bladder dysfunction and a lot of the symptoms that they find bother bothersome are really coming from the, a, a bladder that um, has suffered from obstruction initially and now may actually be overactive and um, causing a lot of symptoms post-surgery. So it's not really necessarily a failure of the intervention, but really a failure to treat the underlying bladder dysfunction. Um, and I actually find in a lot of these uh, patients that the diagnostics are incredibly important. So cystoscopy in anyone who's had a, had a prior procedure um, and even considering urodynamics in a, a lot of these cases to really uh, determine what the underlying etiology of the symptoms are. Um, as to whether you can do another MIST or whether you should go on to a different therapy, I think it's important to understand why you think that therapy failed. 
An example would be um, I not infrequently see patients who've had Urolift, and when I do the office cystoscopy, they have a median lobe, and I think that's often why they failed that therapy. Um, or um, they just didn't get the implants perhaps positioned in the, in the right place. So um, that can tell you a lot, and, and perhaps then you can salvage uh, if, it's, if it's simply the implants didn't end up in the right place, you could potentially salvage that with a, with a mist. Um, I do find that um, enucleation is a great choice for salvaging just about anything. Uh, you can take your lift implants out. You can treat someone after resume. You can, you can basically treat someone any, with any prior surgery and, um, and, and does a really nice job. If the, if the reason for the persistent LUTs is obstructive, then I think your next procedure needs to be something that um, de-obstructs the outlet by any method. And I feel like usually removal of tissue is a better circumstance. Dean or- I think, you know, we, you can't underestimate enough um, the importance of the storage symptoms. Uh, and often, I think we're going to, you know, I think something that'd be maybe interesting to talk about is nocturia. You know, the idea that nocturia is derived from the prostate is like completely bonkers. Uh, of course, you know, uh, BPH LUTs has a role in nocturia, incomplete emptying, frequent urination, but there's OAB, there's nocturnal polyuria up in the kidneys. And so, you know, again, talking about patient expectations, if their primary, the chief urinary complaint, as Toby said, was nocturia, and you do a TERP or a mist, they may not be happy because their nocturnal polyuria wasn't properly treated and they're still waking up four times per night. Maybe it went from five times down to four. So I think setting the expectation and understanding what they want to get out of it. If their primary focus is an OAB symptom, frequency, urgency, or nocturia, um, you need to be very careful because we know that even after a really good bladder outlet surgery, there'll probably be a 30% chance, give or take, that you'll have persistent storage lower urinary tract symptoms, persistent OAB. So that may lead to an unhappy patient if they were essentially doing a BPH procedure for an overactive bladder slash nocturia condition. And I think Dr. Krambeck showed very nicely in her plenary uh, that, that in some of these patients with really uh, decompensated bladders, you actually are doing Botox injections. Yeah, so I, I, I couldn't agree more with the last. I think that's such an important point. If somebody comes with a chief complaint of frequency, urgency, or nocturia, if their PVR is normal, you know, surgery is probably not going to help them. As a matter of fact, it may make them worse, right? Because if they have OIB, now you're taking away the dam. And then when the bladder squeezes without permission, incontinence, there you go. Now you've got a really unhappy patient because you've actually worsened the situation. So again, I think diagnostics are so important. And even after a failed procedure, you know, checking in your dynamics, either invasively or non-invasively, are they obstructed or not? I mean, that's going to play a huge role whether or not you want to do anything. And, and I would have to say probably the biggest take home for me from this meeting was that we really need to be working up primary nocturia. Like it, it needs, if, if that is their only complaint, we, we need to focus on that. And as urologists, we've never really worked this out. Uh, so I, I think it needs to really be, become part of our, our workup process. I tell my patients that nocturia is the most elusive symptom <laughs> and they know we might not fix it. <laughs> so true. Um, so, so Dr. Miller, what's, what do you think the role of PAE is in the treatment of persist, persistent symptoms such as hematuria or obstruction after failed prior BPH? That was 
part of the case presentation um, that was presented at the plenary. And I, I just want to get your opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I think PAE has a role, particularly um, in the larger prostate um, and certainly in the patient that um, might not be particularly fit for additional surgery, which I think is Dr. Elspin was saying, this aging population, um, there are going to be more and more patients on anticoagulation, more and more high-risk surgical patients. And um, I think having a, a less invasive um, option like PAE, I think PAE is here to stay. Um, we're going to either be involved or we're going to be um, not involved. And I think that we should be involved. Um, and so uh, I, I definitely sent some patients uh, for PAE. And um, I think that you just have to explain to the patients that it it is probably more variable, the result from patient to patient. And um, just like any type of intervention, there's no complete guarantees. Um, but it doesn't burn any bridges for them as I, as I look at it. Um, definitely the larger prostate. I mean, I have seen a few cases in my practice of non-target embolization for smaller prostates, and that can be dangerous and, and problematic to deal with. Um, but I think in the appropriately selected patient, it's an option. Great. Um, on the same vein, what are your thoughts on ITIND? The procedure was demonstrated at the plenary session, um, but you know, I, I, I kind of seen it working better in countries where they have limited OR access. What do you see, or how do you see it incorporated in the United States, where we have you know much greater access to the operating room? Who's going to be using ITIND, and, and why are they going to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an incredibly attractive option if you think about it. I mean, attractive providers, attractive to patients. If they don't need anesthetic, if they can have it done in the office, if it's a very short um, recovery time, you know, five to seven days with the device in. I mean, it was beautifully demonstrated in the plenary. Um, and I think it does have a role um, globally. Uh, I agree with you that certainly um, if this was available um, in underserved areas or those with, with um, less resources, um, it, it could be um, very useful in that setting. But there are areas in the United States like that where there are no urologists and it's very, very rural. Um, so I'm excited to see where ITIN goes, as well as all of the other devices that are similar that are um, being developed and, um, you know, looking forward to being able to use it myself. Great. Just a comment on, you know, Dr. Chugtai did a great presentation on the ITIN. And, you know, it's actually one of the first minimally invasive treatments that we've actually been able to evolve from a rigid scope technique to a flexible in-office technique. So, Again, we're refining and becoming a little bit more elegant about how we do these myths. So I, when I perform an ITIN, we do a flexible cystoscopy, and we're only giving just uh, some lidocaine gel into the urethra ahead of time, um, maybe an anxiolytic uh, orally, and that's it. We're not requiring any intravenous or prostate block. Um, and so, again, I think it opens up and expands the site of service and the number of patients we can actually treat if you're essentially doing a flexible cystoscopy plus a very short procedure where you can put the eye tint in its uh, proper location within the prostate, and then of course, remove it uh, seven days later. I think setting expectations is gonna be very important with patients. I mean, they have to understand that this is an office-based procedure and you know, there's a possibility it may not be as durable as something we might do in the operating room. That, that's just the part of the counseling that's necessary when you think about um, these types of procedures. If it takes less to do it, 
there's a chance it might not be the last thing that they have to have done. Totally agree. Um, so this morning we had the SOBPD program and I was really impressed at the number of attendees on the last day of the AUA. It was, it was, was great to see so many people there. Um, Dr. Elterman did a great job planning the meeting and it covered many up and coming topics in the area of male LUTs. Uh, Dr. Elterman, based on the presentations at the SOBPD meeting, do you think there is any role for herbal remedies in the treatment of symptomatic BPH? Ooh, it's a, that's a controversial question. You know, I think part of it is talking about patient expectations and values, and some people just don't want to have anything invasive done. Uh, you know, if you look at the scientific peer-reviewed literature, uh, there's some not a lot of great evidence. And I think most of the stuff, most of the herbal preparations that are prepared and that you can buy online or in your local pharmacy are really not that effective. We know that there's a placebo effect for pretty much everything we do. Um, there's very good literature on saw palmetto, serenero pens, um, but it has to be in the high enough concentration, right? It, and um, we actually just did a recent study looking at um, commercially available uh, saw palmetto, and essentially they're not effective because they don't have enough active ingredients. So it's almost like buyer beware. So yes, there is evidence, but it has to be in the proper formulation, taken in the proper way. Uh, and so it's a little bit caveat emptor, buyer beware, you know, but certainly much more popular in Europe, for sure. Uh, but it's really not prime time here in the United States. And, and, and we kind of discussed this this morning, but why do you think patients are so willing to spend so much money on herbal supplements and not on medication or um, procedural interventions? Why, why does that seem more acceptable to them? I still, well, it's interesting. I still think there's a little bit of stigma around LUTs. And we know that the vast majority of men who suffer from BPH LUTs actually never make it to a doctor. They self-manage their symptoms. And so a lot of men don't even go to see the doctor at all. First, you know, men's health. Secondly, they may be embarrassed to talk about the fact that they're having urgency or a weak stream. And frankly, it's just with our culture of click on a button and it gets delivered to your front door in a day, it's so much easier to take what you perceive as being something which is natural um, uh, with very little downside. Of course, we know that herbal preparations may have some downsides, some drug interactions, and of course, a lack of efficacy. But for the vast majority of, of American men who are suffering from LUTs, they're kind of self-managing. And the easiest thing, because it's a multi-billion dollar industry, is to buy some herbal preparation that they hear about on TV late at night um, because there's really no downside because it's natural. Yeah, I, I have to jump in here that, you know, rattlesnake poison is also natural. You know, there, there's a tendency for people want to have a, a magic bullet. The, I, as I recall, the number one animal planet that was ever aired on television was one about mermaids. So people want to believe in kind of magic bullets and things that, you know, are, are a little more difficult than the standard. So it's a problem, not only in BPH, but in sexual medicine, we get this all the time. Yeah, leave it to Dr. Kohler to spice it up a little <laughs> bit there. So uh, since, you, since you started talking, um, and you, what, a, what do you think of, are the biggest risks of medication um, that we're prescribing for BPH? We talked about that at the SOBPD. 
you know, there was quite a few presentations on this, but in your opinion, what do you think is, uh, is the biggest risk that we need to be talking to our patients about when we prescribe them medication? For me, it's two. The first is uh, just giving alpha blockers and then following up as, as the bladder can get sicker. And second, it's the use of anticholinergics uh, long-term. I think of all the risks presented, uh, in my opinion, um, you know, anticholinergics are, if you really tr truly want to classify them as a BPH drug as they're treating the bladder, right? But uh, I worry about those most long-term in terms of um, maybe sometimes patients chasing their tail because they get dry mouth and they drink more or the possible dementia long-term concerns or the problems with constipation, which also produces LUTs. So those are the kind of two classes of medications that I currently worry most about, but I'm sure more data will come out <laughs> for the other ones too. Perfect. Um, at the meeting this morning, Dr. Miller, they, there was a great presentation on the importance of considering the effects of BPH surgery on ejacula ejaculation and sexual function. You know, as a hold-up surgeon, we have to talk about this quite a bit. And and how do you counsel your patients in this regards? Yeah, I mean, one of the most important things is to make it a really safe space for the conversation. It's obviously an intimate thing to discuss, especially as a female urologist. You know, I um, can't say that I completely would be able to know exactly what that would be like. So it is a little, there's a little bit of a barrier when we're discussing it. But having said that, um, I think, you know, one of the things that we see is that a lot of patients are already on alpha blockers when they come to the office. And so they have had an experience or are having an experience with retrograde ejaculation. So um, when you're talking about surgical options, I think if you can sort out whether that is the case, if they have had experience with it, if it's bothersome to them. I mean, that's really what's so important to understand is for each patient, the bother associated um, or the importance of ejaculatory function will be different. Um, you're absolutely right. When we do a nucleation, there's a high uh, likelihood that the patient will have uh, retrograde ejaculation. And we're very upfront when we discuss that. And I really don't discuss it just from a fertility perspective. Most patients we're seeing aren't concerned anymore about fertility. They're concerned about quality of life and, and is the feeling going to be the same? And so, you know, we, I really try to uh, explore that a lot with them. And I think the other mistake you can make is, is assuming that if someone isn't sexually active, that they don't care about ejaculation, because that's just, just isn't the case. If, if they don't have a, a partner or whatever, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't care about that. Um, so it's a very, very important, is, the two things that I spend a lot of time talking to patients about is, um, what the expectations for surgery as far as their lower urinary tract symptoms are and um, an ejaculatory um, uh, function or dysfunction, however you want to look at it. So I think it is very important. But sometimes they have such a severe voiding dysfunction, such a severe obstruction, such a they're I just operate on someone in catheter for 10 years. Um, you know, you have to take the tissue out and deobstruct the outlet. And if that means it results in retrograde ejaculation, sometimes that's what is necessary. Do you ever incorporate the partner into the discussion? Um, the day I had a woman come up to me after the, one of the sessions and said, you know, it's really important to incorporate the partner as well, because a lot of women uh, see that as a satisfaction point not for them to, to know that they have produced ejaculation. I know we're getting in, down the rabbit hole here, but... <laughs> know what your thoughts were on that. No, I mean, I think as 
as as much as the male patient wants to have their partner or female partner involved in the discussion, I think that is um, is is good to have. Um, some do and some don't, um, because I think some of them think that the female partner might disagree with how bothered they would be because they, again, they they maybe are thinking at it from a different perspective, like oh, well, it's not that important to me, but it and maybe not recognize how important it is to the male patient. So it can be helpful sometimes, but I think it's only if the if the, the male patient themselves want that person involved in the discussion. I also think it's important to really make it clear to the patient that you know, retrograde ejaculation or and ejaculation is not the same thing as uh, you know pleasure with orgasm. So sometimes the patients are think that it's not gonna feel good when they have sex anymore because of this described medical term. And when they understand that it's just no longer seeing fluid, then it becomes less of an issue. So I think it's important to make sure that there's a good understanding there. Yeah. And just saying it's not harmful. That's the first thing I say, okay, it's not harmful in any way because <laughs> they all are like, what happens to it? Well, you know, let's talk about that. <laughs> uh, those, those are great points. You know, we use these terms every day, so we know what they mean, but a patient I mean, even a, a very highly educated patient doesn't really uh, know the difference between ejaculation and orgasm unless you explain it to them. So I, that's on us to do. Um, to pivot to a different subject, Dr. Elterman um, at the SOBPD, there was a great talk on nocturia from Dr. Lerner. Um, it's often assumed that the nocturia is a symptom of obstruction, you know, and it's secondary to BPH, but as demonstrated today, it can be secondary to many severe medical conditions. So when you have a patient come in with a severe nocturia, what is your workup and how do you counsel this patient? Yes, nocturia is uh, a fickle enemy. You know, it's uh, so difficult to characterize and to, you know, get a good understanding. Patients often describe nocturia in very various ways. You know, is it nighttime urgency from their overactive bladder? Is it incomplete emptying? Um, and so my evaluation is such, we need to have a very comprehensive medical history. It includes all of their comorbidities. It includes all of their medications and also just some screening questions. You know, do you snore? Does your partner say you snore? Um, very comprehensive fluid intake history. A lot of people, amazingly, don't draw a connection between the fact that they have a big glass of water or beer or milk or something before bedtime, and lo and behold, they're getting up at nighttime to go pee. Um, so there's, of course, a direct correlation between fluid in and urine out, and so they have to understand that. The other thing is just to understand sort of the pathophysiology. We know that endogenous levels of vasopressin diminish and, and lower as aging people uh, progress into their 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. And so I often explain to patients, you know, um, there's this natural decline in the hormone that allows you to concentrate urine. It's like testosterone declines and estrogen declines. Well, vasopressin declines. And just understanding that this is, this is a natural thing, and that's why older people go to the bathroom more at night, is because they just can't absorb as much fluid and then they release and make more urine. So then they can kind of at least wrap their heads around it. Uh, I think these voiding diaries at night are, are really great. Uh, just to understand again, what was the fluid that went in during the day? How much fluid came out at night and how often? You know, an actual urine collection uh, to be able to diagnose the nocturnal polyuria index 
uh, in adults over the age of 65, it's more than two thirds of your urine produced from the time you go to bed to the time you wake up in the morning. Uh, and then of course, uh, the association to sleep apnea, you know, it's one of these amazing um, medical phenomena where uh, compression on the heart releases ANP from the snoring and then it's a diuretic. And so a simple solution such as going to a sleep lab, getting the sleep study to confirm some uh, not, uh, sleep apnea or snoring, and then a simple intervention such as BiPAP, CPAP, et cetera, can completely get rid of the nocturia. So it is a complex uh, condition and it's very difficult to treat. And almost you got to tease it apart. Take the BPH component out of it. Take the OAB component out of it. Take the medical comorbidities out of it. And eventually you're going to be able to at least whittle down their nocturia to something which is manageable or we're no longer an issue. Is anybody on the panel prescribing DDAVP? Rarely, but yes, sometimes. And how, what dose are you starting out with? And then how do you follow them? Well, like Dr. Dr. Elterman was saying that he, he probably uses it more than I do even. How do you like to follow them? I mean, you have to follow their labs pretty closely. Yeah, so I, I really like DDVP because it's a very targeted medication. Uh, we know how to give it and how to monitor it. And again, if their primary urologic chief complaint is nocturia and you are going down the road that is nocturnal polyuria overproduction of urine and it's not retention with a high PVR, and it's not OAB. Remember, the bladder doesn't sleep at night, right? If you have urgency in the day, you're going to have urgency in the night. So if you can differentiate all of these things and you get down to, okay, we need to turn the faucet down in your kidney. Um, number one, of course, you need a baseline serum sodium. The number I always think about is 135. A lot of the studies have shown that if your baseline serum sodium starts off at above 135, for sure 140, the chance of it dropping down to a low, dangerous hyponatremic level is very low. Of course, it depends on the preparation of DDAVP. Some of the very low dose, uh, Nocturna was available for a period of time. Nocturna is great because it's been shown in studies to have a very low risk, essentially no risk uh, in most age groups and genders of developing uh, hyponatremia. But as a general rule, baseline serum sodium you can repeat it at seven days and then 30 days. Uh, and, that, and then by then you're pretty stable um, and so that would be my suggestion. Uh, but of course, there's so many different low-dose preparations. There's a nasal, there's a sublingual tablet. Um, but I do think as a principle, as a category of medication, DDAVP can be very effective for people who have primary bothersome nocturnal polyuria. So would you require that your patient undergo a sleep apnea evaluation before you prescribe DDAVP? Or, or if they just say, I'm not a snorer, their partner confirms that, you're fine going to DDAVP? From a practical perspective, I think I'm probably fine. Uh, but if they have, you know, a body habitus that suggests that they're going to have sleep apnea um, or any other factors, I mean, I would still encourage them to get the sleep study um, just to see if there's anything else going on. And I think I would just add, you know, there, there's really been um, quite a improvement in the ability to get sleep studies. You know, it used to be you had to go into a lab. It was a really big deal. And I mean, there's a lot of home-based sleep studies at this point, which make it um, easier to make the diagnosis. And also, I think a lot of patients are afraid of getting the diagnosis because they think that they're going to have this mask on them and it's going to be horrible. And there's been a lot of improvement in the CPAP 
um, masks over time too, that are much more comfortable. And it's amazing what they can do when that when sleep apnea is the source of the nocturia. It is a magic when you treat it as far as improving their symptoms. Wonderful. Um, well, we have just a few minutes left, so I would like us to all talk a little bit about the future. Um, in your opinions, what are the key next steps of investigation that you envision necessary to further enhance the evaluation and management of patients with symptomatic BPH? We'll start with you, Dr. Elterman. I think the idea of being able to phenotype patients based upon a number of key factors, um, this remote monitoring, so the ability to do a series of urine tests at home, whether it's with one of these apps that collect the sound of the urine flow, or being able to send people home with an ambulatory small urodynamics catheter, like the bright uro catheter that goes in the bladder. We're going to get a lot of data collected, and you put that together with information like prostate size, shape of anatomy, their principal symptoms. We'll almost be able to make nomograms to say, you know, this patient would be great on meds. This person would be terrible on meds, and they have a risk of, of all these complications. This person will do well with a mist. This person is bound to fail a mist, and they should go to definitive uh, bladder outlet resective surgery. So the idea of getting more and more information and being able to phenotype people almost again in one of these nomograms to help direct the, uh, the direction of their care will be a big advancement. Great. Dr. Kohler? Yeah, I'll go back to establishing the urologic chief complaint and then differentiating whether or not a deobstructing procedure is actually going to address that, whether it's an irritative problem or an obstructive problem, and then arming the patient with information that to protect their own bladder. Wonderful. Dr. Miller? Yeah, you know, one of the things we haven't talked really at all about, because this has been mostly a clinically-based uh, uh, podcast, but um, you know, we should not forget that we, we need to do more research to prevent this problem. And I think the more funded research to look at the pathophysiologic mechanisms be behind BPH is really warranted because we're trying to fix the problem once it's already occurred, but the much better situation would be to prevent it in the first place. Um, and I think there's a, there, there are a lot of, um, you know, intelligent people that are, are trying to, to determine what causes this, this problem. Yes, I would love to one day when my patient says, asks me, why did this happen? That I could say something other than genetics to them, you know, to actually give them a real answer. That would be wonderful. And then we could stop it. So, well, thank you all. The time went by so quickly. Uh, doctors Elterman, Kohler, and Miller, thank you for your time and your, your brains and your excellent discussion. This was really informative, and I hope that the audience found it informative as well. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Thanks. Thank you.